This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, Mary Ellen Pethel and Jennifer Duck of Belmont University teach a class on the history of presidential campaign advertising, from the print and cartoon ads of the 19th century to the internet and social media content of the present day. Hello, everyone. So glad to have you uh, back for Democracy Media in the Public Sphere. Um, so first, we're going to uh, do a, a shout out to begin our class, as we've done before. Um, can I have Natalie and Ryan come up here, please? OK, Natalie and Ryan. Natalie and Ryan, we're giving you a shout out, a special shout out to start class. Go ahead and have a seat. So Natalie. Take this. Natalie, you've uh, previously worked for NPR. You're now working with a Get Out the Vote organization, which you've told us a little bit about. And we're just really proud that you're supporting that democracy. And you're doing social media, so democracy media in the public sphere. Ryan is in the process of building an app to tell us how long the polling lines are, which is just incredible. So bringing in, again, that democracy media and the public sphere. We need those apps. My husband is in line right now. 70-minute wait where he is. So people are really going to mm -hmm. need this app that Ryan's creating. So to you both, Let's you get a hat. <laughs> and we have some different prizes today. They each get a hat that on the front says C-SPAN 2020, but up, wait, on the backs, hashtag unfiltered. <laughs> so you each get a hat. You each get something that you clean screens and <laughs> microfiber lens there wipes. You go. That's right. And then, very handy, always needed, a pen. There you go. So. Give them a hand. So thank you both. You can go back to your seats. Thank you both for your work in promoting democracy, media, and the public sphere, which is why we're all here today, right? Um, so today we're going to be talking about political advertising in campaigns. This is from chapter 13 in your book. Um, there's much to discuss. Something that came to mind for me, the journalist, of course, is something that was told to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein by Deep Throat. What is Deep Throat's most famous line? Follow the money. Say it. money. Yes, follow the money. Campaign advertising, political ads and campaigns are very similar. So Dr. Pethel, start us off. All right, we're going to move over to the next slide, and we're going to be looking at some history um, and talking about the history of political ads and looking at both positive but negative ads. And so as we pull this up, um, yes, this is out of chapter 13 in your book. If you do have this handy, it'd be great. I'm going to be making references to a few pages. And before we get started, we know that early voting has started in Tennessee and in most, uh, around, most places around the country. I've got my Vote Y'all button on that you can get. And if you haven't yet gotten your t-shirt for the debate, which is one week away, does everybody have one of these yet? Or you should. Vote Y'all, Belmont University 2020 Presidential Debate. So make sure you grab one of those. We are just one week away from the debate and less than three weeks away from the election. So these are exciting times uh, for democracy, media, and the public sphere. So let's talk a little bit about some of the negative elements and how far back they go, because people always talk about how negative politics are these days, right? Don't worry. These, this has been going on since the dawn of time, since the dawn of politics. 
Political advertising begins all the way back in the 1800s, all the way back to Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And this is one of the best, weirdest lines you will ever hear. Thomas Jefferson said of, that John Adams had the hideous hermaphroditical character which has neither the force and firmness of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. Essentially, he was saying he was a hermaphrodite, right? He was attacking his manliness. In response, Adams Camp predicted that Jefferson's election would bring murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and the soil will be soaked with blood and the nation black with crimes. So they're already going after each other pretty hard, right? And we think about the negative campaigning today and we'll see some ads where we're looking at historic ads and then current ads, and you'll see that a lot of these same themes, they're just the same things going all the way back to 1800 that we've been looking at in this country for over 200 years. Jefferson was called godless. Adams was called a tyrant. That's coming from page 400 in your book. So then this term called mudslinging. Have you all heard the term mudslinging before? I mean, it, it's, it's a really just an analogy for literally slinging mud at somebody, throwing mud because it sticks, right? It's dirty. And so the first real campaign that was called a mudslinging campaign was between Andrew Jackson and John Adams. The opponents claimed that Jackson's mother was a prostitute. He was indeed orphaned at the age of 13. He used that story to build up his character and to actually say that he was a common man who understood the, you know, the pain that many people went through. But not only did uh, his opponent say his, Jack, his mother was a prostitute, which is a huge blow if you're already orphaned and don't have your mother, that, right? that cuts really deep, but also made harsh claims about his marriage to Rachel Donaldson, whom he had married here in Nashville, Tennessee. But they called him a bigamist and her a bigamist because she had previously been married. And technically, it's kind of a long and complicated story. Go back and read it on your own. But short version is, she was technically not divorced. In turn, uh, the Jacksonians said of John Quincy Adams that when John Quincy Adams was a foreign ambassador, he arranged for American women to provide sexual services to the Russian czar. So see, even Russia's been in our elections for a very, very long time. <laughs> so I wanted to show you a few political cartoons this is a cartoon, a famous cartoon of Andrew Jackson. It's called The Political Barbecue. And you've got, uh, this is the fire of public opinion. I, I don't know if you just kind of faint, but you see the public opinion there. They've got Andrew Jackson, and what does he look like? Just yell it. He looks like a pig, right? And they're doing this in, in like a really interesting way. So it's like half pig, he's half man, and he even has the cloven hoof and the tail, which were a little bit uh, of a knock on um, really his character, but also the idea of uh, evil and of um, even re religious arguments against Andrew Jackson, the cloven hoof as being a symbol of the devil. Um, and then you've got his political adversaries there. You see Justice. She's blinded, right? She's got the scales but yet she's like poking the fire. And then you see his vice presidential candidate. Anybody know who Jackson's vice presidential candidate was? Van Buren, there you go. Martin Van Buren, he was known as the little magician. 
Can you tell me which figure most looks like the little magician in that cartoon? <laughs> Who is it? Which one is it that looks the most squirrely? That top right? Yeah, so Martin Van Buren, and you see he's like floating off, and he's also being represented as half pig with the tail, right? And he's running off, and he's got the keys to the kingdom. So this is a political ad, one of the most famous, um, and so this is a great ad to look at. Abraham Lincoln, you know, Abraham Lincoln is so often seen as being America's uh, most beloved and most important president. But, and, but Abraham Lincoln also had a lot of uh, detractors. And so in this ad in 1860, he's actually splitting the South. You see that log? He's splitting the South, which does divide into the Northern and, Democrat, Northern and Southern Democratic parties, which allows him to win. And he's splitting it. And that, it's tough to see, but if you look here, this actually where he's splitting it, it says irrepressible conflict. And this is a claim that if he's elected, then he's going to be bringing irrepressible conflict. And really, they, what they mean is a civil war, which does happen. The other kind of weird thing, though, what's going on in this cartoon, the other weird thing that has to do with what Lincoln's doing or what he's using. Anybody? So he's sitting on another person. One of his adversaries sitting on another person. He's, there's two more things I'm looking for. Yeah, he's using the head of one of his political adversaries as the axe. And then one more thing. He's stepping on the Constitution. Okay? The next one. This is an anti-Grover Cleveland ad running in 1884. Grover Cleveland had fathered a child out of wedlock. And so they had this ad, and it actually turned into a campaign slogan for his opponents. And the slogan was, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Talking about Grover Cleveland having fathered this child and then abandoning this child and not claiming um, to be the father. And so... <laughs> we are going to mute, mute the Zooms, please. So that was uh, the dog's reaction to Mama, where's my pa, right? For those of you watching, this is what happens when you're in a high flex mode. Always be prepared for the unpredictable. Um, so the, the, the claim was, Mama, where's my pa? And then Cleveland's going to win the election. And you know what his supporters end up saying back? They say, he's gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. So it's like Grover Cleveland getting the last laugh. So that then brings us to the last, and I'm going to get you to advance the slide for me. Sure. Why are political cartoons so effective? So the cartoon itself was originally uh, a sketch for a larger work of art. And this is going to change in 1843 when the British journalist named John Leach, he first used the term for a cartoon to mean a parody or a caricature. And so that's really what it becomes. Cartoons reach wide 
audiences. And it doesn't matter if you're formally educated or you're not educated, literate, not literate, especially in the 1840s where literacy rates were fairly low. Um, and they also employ humor and satire. So they're very, uh, they're, they're, they, they not only appeal to a wide audience, but they're understood by a wide audience. Thomas Nast, as you guys noted, when we did the Muckraker Project, he's going to take political cartoons to the next level. And Boss Tweed, who was the, the main guy he took down, he said of Thomas Nast, quote, I don't care so much what the papers write, my constituents can't read. It's them damn pictures. Because even if you weren't literate, the cartoons themselves portrayed a very powerful message. So there was a University of Indiana Bloomington exhibit about presidential campaigns and cartoon history going from 1789 to 1976. Um, and they have a couple of different arguments for why political cartoons are so successful. They say one is a vehicle for hostility. It's a really easy way to put out some opposition um, messaging against your candidate. And the second is that it, they satisfy us as, as constituents because they take often very complex situations and reduce them to something that's very simple and neat and easy to understand. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Duck, who's going to talk about the new political cartoon, a.k.a. The meme. The meme, right? How many of you have seen this meme in other variations? Everyone, yes. How many of you have seen it in the political cartoon and political meme iteration? A few of you. Okay, I'm pretty impressed. So the meme takes all of those things. It's simple. It's easy to digest. It goes viral. How many of you have seen memes in the 2020 campaign cycle? And where are you seeing them? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, TikTok, yep, all the above. Uh, so this meme has become, from the Retro Report, has become editorial cartoons, society, political memes. I don't even need, I think I need to explain much. But Claire Wardle, who is uh, with First Draft and is a really big expert on misinformation and disinformation, um, reminds us that memes have actually been around since 1976. So the formal definition of the term meme, coined by biologist Richard Dawkins in 1976, is an idea or behavior that spreads person to person throughout a culture by propagating rapidly and changing over time. Now, it's obviously the gifts that we see online. They're the most effective and are humorous or critical of society. How many of us laugh at memes? They're pretty funny. But they have the sticking power, too. They stick with us. So even if we know their humor, they're affecting us, and they're parts of these campaigns. So they're really powerful weapons of disinformation and misinformation as well, which we've talked a lot about in this class. Um, Clemson professor Darren Livell, this is someone I, I study under Professor Linville at Clemson. Um, he's one of my mentors there. But I told him, I said, can you just give me a quote on memes? I was talking to him yesterday. And he said, memes remain the king of disinformation. They're more powerful than other high-tech campaign influencers like deepfakes. They are so cheap to produce that you can get a lot of traction without a whole lot of work. And then he says, thank you, Twitter. That was actually from, I think, a Washington Post article when he said that part. So they are really powerful campaign ads. That is what we're seeing now with uh, memes and campaign ads. However, however, 
TV political ads remain very, very effective. So candidates can take a positive approach, but as we've seen, more often than not, they take that negative attack. Negative ads criticize the opposing candidates. Um, they also can use that dramatic production quality, right? We've seen those grainy images. We see the big wide shots or close-ups. Um, they target the candidate's words, so you'll see the candidate talking, and they're using their own words against them. Um, they can vary in accuracy, deceptiveness, and they really do uh, invite viewers to draw the false inferences. And as you were all watching your campaign ads, how many of you had a negative ad that you were studying? How many of you had a positive one? Very interesting, right? So as we're going forward, we're going to see a little bit about that. Um, negative ads, and I'll have Dr. Pethel take over again here, but they um, can succeed or fail, and there's a history to this. So I'll have you advance that slide and tell us a little bit. We're going to play a few short clips here. Okay. So 1958 is going to be the first year that you really see campaign ads. And I'm just going to play a clip of two campaign ads. And this is when Eisenhower is running for president as a Republican against Adelaide Stevens and, uh, Stevenson excuse me, in 1952. This is one of the very first campaign ads. You've heard a little bit of this before, but I'll play this ad for you. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president. You like I, I like I, everybody likes I for president. Hang out the banner, beat the drum, we'll take I to Washington. We don't want John or D or Harry, let's do that big job right. Just get in step with the guy that's up, get in step with I. You like I, I like I, everybody likes I for president. So I'm going to stop it right there, but I, first I'll just say, I dare you to get that song out of your head for the rest of the day. Yeah, You're going to be repetition, right? I, you know, I, I, I for that's right. Yeah. So that was uh, 1952. Now I'm going to play for you not only the f first major negative ad, but the like number rated number one weirdest campaign ad. Um, and I've got to give you just a tiny bit of background. You had a senator from Ohio named Robert Taft, called Bob Taft, who ran in the Republican primary against um, Eisenhower. Eisenhower obviously wins the primary, um, but they had kind of a spat, and then they made up, uh, you know, was Taft going to support Eisenhower? So this is an ad by Stevenson's campaign that's basically saying that Bob Taft is going to overpower Eisenhower, and they had this weird relationship, and... Um, I'm, I'm just not going to tell you any more than that, except for get ready for some of the strangest voices you've ever heard. Ike. Bob. Ike. Bob. I'm so glad we're friends again, Bob. Yes, Ike. We agree on everything. Let's never separate again, Bob. Never again, Ike. Bob. <laughs> Ike. Bob. Ike. Will Ike and Bob really live happily ever after? So that's the ad. Number one, you've got to wonder, like, who came up with that concept? 
You know, like who's, who's like story mapping that and storyboarding that and thinking, oh yeah, this is a great concept. And let's make them sound like frogs. <laughs> um, so, but I think my point with showing you that ad is that if that's the first negative ad on television, you know, it's, it's pretty tame, right? If anything, it's almost, uh, it's almost just because it's so strange. But it was for Stevenson trying to take down um, Eisenhower. Of course, Eisenhower is going to win in a landslide. But if you look at that being the, one of the first major negative ads, um, that's called the Ike and Bob ad, then I think that really starts to set up uh, negative advertising um, in the United States after that. So we're going to start with JFK's uh, in the 1960s. We've got JFK's assassination going on, uh, nationwide unrest, social movements, Cold War, political party realignment. And something on the previous slide I forgot to highlight, although you saw it, is that only 25% of all of the advertisements were negative in 1952. And if you're counting Ike and Bob as one of those 25%, then that's also, as I mentioned, pretty tame. So by, by the early 1960s, though, you've got nine in 10 households who now have a television. And this is where you see the first major jump. In 1964, you're going to have 59% of the ads are going to be negative. That's a huge jump. And in part, it's because the TV audience is there. And the technology to create campaign commercials, the way that campaigns are run, begins to shift where it's not just about door knocking and going from town to town and shaking hands. It's about communicating with audiences that go straight into their home. And it's visual now. It moves beyond what the radio could do and what newspapers could do. And even in some cases, what political cartoons could do. Um, and so this is going to be uh, bring up maybe the most famous or infamous ads that happens in 1964. It was the, uh, called Daisy Girl. It was um, one of the most studied, remains one of the most studied campaign ads. It was actually so controversial that it, it was pulled rather quickly. It did not play for very long. And so this is going to bring up our first group. And um, I'm going to We're gonna have, have Professor forward. Duck uh, introduce them briefly. Yeah. And then they have a pre-recorded presentation. So we'll watch the presentation together. Yeah, we're actually going to just have you stand up because it's pre-recorded. So we put it in our slides for you. So Audrey, Bridget, Ellie, Sarah, and Sierra, please stand up. This yeah. presentation is brought to you by Audrey, Bridget, Ellie, Sarah, and Sierra. Uh, do you have just a few words to say about Daisy Girl? Any just real quick thoughts? And we'll get into your slides now. Was it surprising? Was it super negative? Are you surprised it was pulled after it watching? It was pretty intense. So I feel like watching it, I wasn't super surprised knowing that it got pulled. Yeah. OK, so now we're going to have everyone watch this. And you all can decide, and we can discuss. So this is the presentation by uh, Team Group 1 on Daisy Girl. Um, hi everyone, we are going to be talking about Johnson's 1964 political ad.
um, which ended up distracting them from the factual evidence uh, behind the argument that was being presented. The DAISY ad was created by the Doyle Dane Birnbach ad company, who were also responsible for most of Johnson's ads during the 1964 campaign. The firm is widely recognized as revolutionary, the DAISY ad being example. It's impacting large on the election, even though it was only ran once. So DDB created the standard of short 30, 60 second ads reliant not on distilling information, most likely already known by voters, but more so on the emotional trigger that could be elicited on this source info which then became the standard of ads up into the present. Um, so the second ad that we're going to be comparing it to is one of Hillary Clinton's ads that was released in 2016. I spent many years as a nuclear missile launch officer. If the president gave the order we had to launch the missiles, that would be it. I prayed that call would never come. Self-control may be all that keeps these missiles from firing. I would bomb the shit out of them. I want to be unpredictable. I love war. The thought of Donald Trump with nuclear weapons scares me to death. It should scare everyone. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. Um, so we chose this ad because it basically has a very similar message um, to Johnson's Daisy Girl ad that voting for the other opponent will result in nuclear war. Um, Hillary Clinton used Bruce Blair, the former launch officer at Ellsworth missile site in South Dakota to gain favor with the voters. So a key difference here is the use of pathos versus ethos. In Johnson's ad, he used pathos uh, with the young girl. It played on the emotions and the values of the American people. Um, he says that vote to vote for him so that we can make a world where all God's children can live. Um, whereas Clinton uses ethos with Bruce Blair. Uh, she doesn't necessarily have um, an emotional or a pity appeal quite like Johnson did. Um, but Bruce Blair is more of a figure that the American public can trust. He's credible. He's experienced. And he confirms the message that Clinton is trying to send here. So the similarities in the two is that both ads use fear mongering about nuclear bombs. They're trying to make people really afraid so that they do vote for them. Um, they want to put the American people in a place where they have to make a decision. Either you live and you choose um, either Hillary or Johnson or you die and you vote for the other side. The difference in these two ads is that Hillary's ad used her opponent's words against himself. She actually used clips of Donald Trump in different rallies and speeches um, against him, unlike Johnson, who didn't exactly outright um, attack his opponent. And then the fallacies in both of them are ad hominem, which is criticizing a person's point of view using their own character and personality. Um, a false dilemma, which is presenting complex issues in terms of two inherently opposite sides, which is you either choose life or you choose death with nuclear bombs, and the hasty generalization, which is drawing expansive conclusions based on inadequate evidence, um, which is just like basically saying, um, if you vote for this one person, they're going to be the reason why the end of civilization occurs. And then the context of both of these ads is just that people are really afraid of nuclear war and they don't want to die. So these politicians were using that fear to try and gain favor with the American people. Um, we hope you enjoyed our presentation and that is all. Let's give them a big hand.
That was great. Yeah, I, I would prefer not to die also. Yeah, so good, good call there. Um, sorry about the, uh, about the technical difficulties on that. And uh, we also uploaded it to my YouTube page, so. <laughs> That's right. Sorry for the. Um, yeah, trying to uh, work on the volume here. So that brings us to the 1970s. And we know that the water, uh, 1970s are coming after the 1960s, right? I mean, that's not too tough, but um, thanks. It took me a while to put that together. Um, but the 1970s are an extension in some ways, uh, but also uh, several issues become even more intense, uh, particularly when you're talking about um, uh, Watergate, when you're talking about Vietnam, anti-war protest. And so you really have both parties that are fighting to become the moral party. Um, I also mentioned here political party realignment. We talked about this earlier in the semester that really from the 30s, but especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you start to see that realignment. In fact, Johnson's election that they showed uh, there in 64, that was one of the last major landslide elections. You do have one also with Reagan. Um, and so the South is realigning politically, the West, the North, um, and the Democratic and Republican parties are changing roles also. And I think that's part of why you see in the 70s and 80s a lot of sort of messy messaging and both parties jockeying to be this moral party um, of the everyday American. And so this is going to, uh, we, we chose a, a very rare, rarely seen ad by Gerald Ford for one group to talk, to show how each party is trying to um, establish this position in politics. And just to let you know, though, it does continue with Ronald Reagan. And we're not going to play it in this class, but maybe the uh, most famous Ronald Reagan ad is called Morning in America. Has anybody seen that ad? A few people. If not, after class, watch it as Morning in America. Like, everybody's getting up. They're raising the flag. They're going to work. It's a very positive ad that's reinforcing a lot of the values um, that Reagan and uh, the Republican Party are embracing by the 1980s. So they, in some ways, win that argument. But, you know, we've talked about law and order in this class, too, and watching the documentary 13th, and that also being a big part of it, too. So with that, we want to go ahead and bring up group two, which will be doing a live presentation. This is Gabby, Jordan, Savannah, and Marissa. It's not the price is right, but come on down. <laughs> You can use the clicker if you want, or we have you in here. Yep. Okay, your slides are in your slides, so just you keep going forward. the button go down on it if you want it, or you can use the mouse. Okay, so yeah, we're just going to continue this conversation about political ads. And we are first going to look at a political ad by President Ford for the 1976 election. Listen to Pastor W.A. Criswell. On a Thursday of a week ago, along with other men of the faith, I was invited to visit with the president in the White House. And in our conversation with him, we asked him, Mr. President, if Playboy magazine were to ask you for an interview, what would you do? 
And the president replied, I was asked by Playboy magazine for an interview. And I declined with an emphatic no, and I like that. Okay, great. <laughs> so the point being made there, obviously, is, oops. Here we go. <laughs> Back here. Um, <laughs> The point being made there, obviously, is that Ford declined to do an interview with Playboy magazine, which apparently made him more of an honest and like a man with integrity, which was super important to the election in 1976 because this was happening post-Watergate. So one of the big things that candidates wanted to focus on is that they were honest, good, trustworthy men that the American people could like rely on. So that was one of the angles taken here but it was not effective enough because Ford actually did not win that elective uh, election. However, it was impactful as he pioneered the Moral Majority, which is a Republican religious organization that highlighted the moral and traditional views of the religious right. This campaign ad utilized the strategy appealing to Christian voters in the South. So that kind of goes along with the themes that Dr. Pethel was just talking about as well. Um, so there were obviously pros and cons to this ad, and some um, pros are that Southern voters really appreciated the moral com compass of Ford um, by declining this um, Playboy offer that he got um, because Jimmy Carter's campaign was really hurt by the fact he did a Playboy um, article. Um, and he also, like we said, inspired the moral majority as well. Um, and kind of rebirthed the Southern strategy, which focused on that conservative ideal of like, we are Christians, um, we have a sexual restraint, and it wasn't just racial segregation like it happened in the past. Okay, um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the fallacies used in Ford's ad. So the first one was hasty generalization, which is when you take one little fact and use it to draw a whole conclusion. So uh, Pastor Chris Wells' statement is not exactly enough evidence to promote and support that Ford would be a good president just because he did this one thing. Um, another fallacy used would be moral equivalence. So that's like saying that one action of somebody is just as bad as an action of somebody else. Um, so they're directly attacking Carter because he did do a Playboy interview. So they're trying to show that Ford because he did not do it, and that Carter did do it, uh, he's doing something far more heinous than what he actually has done. And then uh, lastly, anecdotal evidence. So there's no actual real proof that Ford was even offered an interview by Playboy and that he declined it. So uh, this is all purely anecdotal, what uh, Ford had told Chriswell and what Chriswell decided to tell his whole church. All right, so we're gonna play one more ad, a more recent ad. I grew up in the church. I attended a private Christian high school. You look at a way someone lives their life and you believe them. Grab them by the pussy. You're a star, they let you do it. I was taught the principle that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. When he used force to clear Lafayette Park and to stand in front of St. John's to bludgeon and gas peaceful protesters for a ridiculous photo op. The moment that he held up that Bible, he revealed this president is 
using us. Christians have to resist being used to justify things that Jesus would never justify. Very fine people on both sides. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. I am the chosen one. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. What's going on now is wrong. And as a Republican, as a Christian, we simply cannot allow this man to be reelected. Okay, so before we examine that, we're first going to look at where President Trump currently stands with more religious and Christian voters. So President Trump and his re-election campaign have largely centered their platform around winning over the Christian, perhaps more religious vote. And Republicans are also appealing to voters of faith by claiming that Democrats have unfairly criticized Supreme Court nominee Judge Amy Coney Barrett for her Catholicism, although so far no Democratic senator has brought up the issue of her, or her religion of Catholicism. So in that ad, what's the message? So in the 2016 election, eight in 10 self-identified born-again evangelical Christians say that they voted for President Trump, whereas just 16% voted for Clinton. And during the 2016 election and the current election, President Trump has largely centered his campaign around attempting to win over the religious voter. And in fact, Eric Trump, in a recent interview, said last week that his dad, President Trump, uh, quote, literally saved Christianity and added that, quote, the Democratic Party, the far left, has become the party of atheists and they want to attack Christianity. So this ad is an attempt to sway away the Republican voter, perhaps more religious voter, um, from voting for President Trump. So some current parallels that we're seeing a little bit more recently. Um, most recently, a new super PAC called Dubbed Not Our Faith, which includes a, path, a past faith advisor from former President Barack Obama, is designed to chip away at Christian support for President Trump in the uh, election. And so they released one specific ad that was, it hasn't been released publicly, but it was shown to the Associated Press earlier this week. And according to the AP, uh, the one of the ads claims that President Trump has, quote, used Christianity for his own purposes and adds that Christian voters, quote, don't need Trump to save them. The, tr the truth is that Trump needs Christians to save his flailing campaign. So in the last ad and in this uh, ad about President Trump, we're seeing a parallel of Christian voters kind of being used in Christian values rather than being practiced are being used for political gain and political purposes rather than being practiced. Um, so, like Marissa said, these ads are really similar because they showcase the Christian vote and how these candidates really want to gain onto that Christian vote because in America, 70.6% of people are Christian. So, again, huge part of the vote, and if you get the Christian vote, it seems like you're going to win. And then these ads differ because in Ford's ad, he shows his own beliefs, or at least what we think are his own beliefs in an anecdotal way. Um, and by his refusal to be in the Playboy ad, he was part of the moral majority. However, Trump's ad kind of shows his lack of understanding of Christian beliefs, um, and I'm sure they put that purposefully in there, and it hinders him from getting the vote of the moral majority that Ford set up. Okay, and in some of the fallacies that are used in both ads, uh, they both use hasty generalization. So the second ad is saying that Trump is not a real Christian because he continuously does things that are not Christ-like. Um, and that does not 
necessarily give enough information to say that he would be a bad president. Um, and then also moral equivalence. Uh, the first one, you know, I already mentioned that uh, they're saying that Carter is bad for doing that Playboy interview and Ford is good for not doing that Playboy interview. Um, and then the anti-Trump ad says that because Trump is faking being a Christian, he's unfit for office, which is not necessarily correlated. That's all we have. Oh, yep. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, what's one thing that's interesting about the Ford ad is the fact that he was running against Jimmy Carter, which um, who's known as being uh, a very um, a man of, uh, of deep faith, a Southern Baptist, uh, and so it was interesting that he did that uh, that Playboy interview. All right, let me get let's get us back. And in that interview, he did talk, if you go back and look at the interview, he did talk a lot about his faith. Um, and it was a really in-depth interview, but because it was in Playboy, that was the big controversy, right? So they, I noticed the group put Rick Perlstein up there. He has a new book out on the Reagan conservatism, and it talks a lot about Jimmy Carter. So that's a good, I, I put that podcast with Rick Perlstein in your syllabus to kind of look over as additional, additional listening or reading. Um, but just to kind of understand that story more, it breaks it down. So that brings us to the 1980s. Here we are, 1980s. Um, and so you notice there's a similar theme in the, in the title of some of the things that are going on there. What's the word? War. War. But different kinds. But you do see a lot of tension happening in the 1980s. Military, political, cultural so you have the culture wars, the war on drugs, the end of the Cold War, as uh, we set up in the slide and as the group so uh, articulately uh, explained in their presentation that the Republican Party really did emerge as the moral majority in the 1980s as uh, the nation fought over a host of culture war issues. The political party realignment is also pretty much in place by the 1980s. We may be seeing some political party realignment right now. You know, the tectonic plates may be shifting under us as we speak. Um, but until the last, over the last 40 years, the political party realignment between states that are traditionally Democratic, states that are traditionally Republican is set for the most part by the 1980s. And so you have mostly the South has gone from the Democratic Party in the 30s, 40s, and 50s over to the Republican Party by the 70s, 80s, and certainly the 90s. And many African Americans are going to remain Democrats. You do still have a lot of people in the middle that, that vote for both parties, but that's the general political party realignment. And you have a group known as the Reagan Democrats, many white working class uh, men and women that lead to the landslide elections Again, since Johnson, Reagan's going to be the next one. And in 1984, you have that Morning in America uh, commercial, which is a very famous positive ad. And we're not going to uh, look at that in class, but I do, as I said earlier, encourage you to watch it. You have a, a very uh, noticeable shift to negative ads in 1988 when George H.W. Bush is running against Michael Dukakis. And I did want to point out, and I know you've already read this, but there from page uh, 410 to 414 in your book, um, it, it does an entire case study of 
the ad that is going to be featured in this last presentation that's known as the Willie Horton ad. And so with that, we're going to introduce uh, the last group who also has a pre-recorded um, presentation. And so I'll have you stand, Caleb, Rachel, uh, Aiden, and Sydney. Let's go ahead and just give them a hand anyway. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Take a bow. Is there anything um, about this ad that surprised you or that you found interesting as you were analyzing it? I think it's really short. Like it's, it's um, like 30 seconds, but it was still like really, really impactful to like the general public's perception of Dukakis in right. the general election. 30 seconds of being uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the Willie Horton ad is, is it's still referenced a whole lot. And so, um, so with that, you wanna go ahead and take it away? Hi, this is an analysis of campaign ads through history. We're specifically going to be talking about George H.W. Bush versus Donald J. Trump. This presentation is by Sydney, Rachel, Caleb, and Aiden. A quick introduction, in 1988, the stage was set for what was going to be one of the most bitter presidential elections yet. The candidates were Vice President George H.W. Bush versus Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. Dukakis had drastically different views when it came to policies in health care, child care, education, and housing. The Bush campaign used Dukakis's views against him, saying that while Bush supports the death penalty, Dukakis opposes the death penalty, and he allows first-degree murderers to have weakened passes when referring to Dukakis's furlough policies. The ad demonized prison furloughs. A black man named Willie Horton, who had escaped during his prison furlough, was used as the ad's center. By using a black man on an ad specifically about how Bush was harsher on crime than his opponent, Dukakis, this plays on the racist ideal that only black Americans are considered criminals. This pushes a racist agenda. This ad release was considered a Hail Mary for the Bush campaign because ahead of the ad's releasing, Dukakis was leading Bush by a fairly large margin. After that, Bush went on to win the presidency. The ad swayed voters' decisions greatly. Here's the campaign ad featuring Willie Horton that was so controversial. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Now that we've seen the ad, let's take a look at some backstory and context for the time surrounding its release. William Horton was arrested along with three other men for the robbery of a gas station, and while they were there, one of the men stabbed the boy who was working at the time. No one admitted to the murder, and continually pointed fingers at each other until the detectives decided to blame Horton. He denied it, but was sentenced to life in prison. While there, he was given ten weekend passes until, on the tenth one, he ran. He was found miles away after breaking into a young couple's home and assaulting them. He also claimed he was innocent on this matter, but was denied further weekend passes. One interesting thing about Horton was that he actually never went by Willie. The organization who founded the ad made that up. As for Michael Dukakis, he was the governor of Massachusetts where Horton was convicted of robbery and murder. 
He opposed the death penalty and promoted furlough programs to help ease the tensions and provide felons a gradual integration back into society. The ad itself was actually funded and released by an independent group of Bush supporters, not the official Bush campaign. The ad only ran for a month on cable networks, meaning it did not get a lot of traction until much later, and it was eventually taken down and replaced with a similar Bush-sponsored ad that had the same message but did not feature the mugshot of Horton or mention him by name. Now, let's talk about strategy and fallacies in this ad. The ad makes strong use of pathos in its appeal to the public. It takes advantage of the general fear of violent crime and desire for safety in the American home. By striking fear of a soft-on-crime candidate into the American people, Bush was able to discredit Dukakis and erase much of the trust that the public had for him, giving Bush the edge and the ultimate victory in the election. We see two different fallacies here. First, the false dilemma or false dichotomy fallacy where two opposing options are presented as the only options or outcomes. In this case, the ad claims that either the public elects Dukakis, who will allow crime to run rampant on the streets with weekend passes, or they will elect Bush, who not only opposes the weekend passes, he promotes the death penalty for first-degree murderers, allowing for a safer environment across the country. Second, the slippery slope fallacy where the cause and effect chain is exaggerated and outcomes are suggested that aren't necessarily guaranteed. With the Horton ad, we see the following progression. Dukakis opposes the death penalty and supports weekend passes. Therefore, Willie Horton got a pass and assaulted a couple. Therefore, weekend passes are the cause of violence. This argument is somewhat valid. Dukakis did support prison passes, and Horton did use his to commit more violent crimes. However, not all prisoners who use weekend prison passes follow in Horton's example. In fact, these passes were typically awarded for good behavior. As Sidney mentioned, this ad created widespread fear and anxiety about having a president who supported prison passes. And as a result, it turned the tide in Bush's favor. This ad was a pretty low blow to his opponent's campaign, and when Dukakis failed to respond for a significant amount of time, Bush had sealed his victory. This ad was released on July 15, 2020, and went relatively unnoticed as much as any election ad can. However, on August 26, 2020, Vice President Mike Pence said during an interview, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America, which, obviously, is the name of and idea behind the ad. His statement gained a lot of traction, and as a result, the Trump campaign pushed the ad significantly harder. This ad was a direct response to specific violent Black Lives Matter protests, which, although not confined to these months, were covered heavily by the media in June and July, making it a perfect time for the Trump campaign to promote the ad. It also is strikingly similar to the Bush advert we viewed earlier. Firstly, both ads use pathos as an appeal to the public. Instead of placing trust in the candidate, they both attempt to cause their audiences to trust the other candidate less. Specifically, they're both an attempt to make the other candidate look incompetent at keeping the country's citizens physically safe. This ad received harsh backlash from Democrats, as the ad was targeted at and shown mostly to centrists and leftists to place distrust in Joe Biden. The YouTube video has a 4 to 1 like to dislike ratio, which might not seem terrible, but is very low for the site. Although it is important to keep in mind that it's a political ad and that this is relatively common to political ads. Nevertheless, the top four comments on the video are some variation of this is what's happening in Trump's America, not Biden's America, or something similarly negative. That's not to say that this ad wasn't successful. It's arguable that any publicity is good publicity. It certainly has both strengths and weaknesses, which I'll let Aiden point out. First though, I'm going to play the ad. 
The radical left-wing mob's agenda? Take over our cities, defund the police, pressure more towns to follow, and Joe Biden stands with them. Cutting police funding. Yes, absolutely. Eliminating cash bail, letting criminals back on the street, violent crime exploding, innocent children fatally shot. Who will be there to answer the call when your children aren't safe? I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Both President George H.W. Bush's ad and Donald Trump's ad use similar strategies that evoked fear in the public revolving around in opposing candidates' views on certain subjects. Bush's ad focused on the fear of letting criminals free from prison, while Trump's ad focused on the riots surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement. Both ads attempted to discredit the opposing candidate, and I believe Bush's ad saw greater success in comparison to Trump's ad, which, while gained some traction amongst his supporters, has been unsuccessful in really discrediting Biden and gaining traction outside of Trump's supporters. Mainly because the scenarios are slightly different. Bush was fighting to become a new president, while Trump is fighting to remain president, which takes away from the fear of living in Biden's America. Because right now, America is so divided under Trump's presidency. To conclude, Trump's advertisement used a historically successful political strategy that appealed to the public's growing concern over safety regarding the Black Lives Matter movement riots, looting, and defunding the police. But times have since changed. Social media has allowed for more unfiltered media to reach the public, letting them form educated opinions about social issues in America from person to person, rather than a news source. In comparison to during the 1988 election, the Bush advertisement, which brought up shocking new information about Dukakis, Trump's advertisement didn't really bring up anything new about Joe Biden. Which is especially important when you're trying to make an advertisement that is against the opposing candidate. Public opinion on social issues are different right now. We really are focusing, America is really focusing on the Black Lives Matter movement because it's really important to stop the unjust killings of black people by cops. Also, political advertisements today are no longer the largest factor in influencing a person's vote. Really, it's the small tidbits of information that we pick up during social media and maybe occasionally on the news. So really, his advertisement wasn't successful in changing the viewer's opinion about which candidate they're going to vote for. All right, so let's uh, give a hand to group number three. Um, so, how many of you, after watching all these ads, are uncomfortable? <laughs> Me too. Uh, and they're negative, right? So, there are some limitations to these ads, but why should we study these ads? Why is it important to see them and try to understand the ads? Uh, because it might try to like manipulate viewers, and it's just good to be able to come from an objective perspective and maybe break it down in a way that other people might not consider and not let it take advantage of you or manipulate you. Yeah, because these are forms of, the advertisements can be seen as forms of propaganda. It's the one side, highly edited clips. We saw that um, in, in both sides. I mean, it's, it's both sides coming at this in that way where media can be used. And I think group number three did such a great job with the social media aspect of it, right? Memes we talked about and other things are spreading and we don't know 
necessarily where it's coming from. So we're going to break down the packs and super packs as well, because you guys brought those up. But they are uncomfortable. I was watching them too, and I'm like, oh my god, these are, they are. Uh, and this has been going on. The history of these ads go back. I mean, it's not just this election cycle. You all are first-time voters. You're probably all tuning in for the first time. But to know that this has a history going you know, way back to the 50s, as Dr. Pethel had said, is important to understand. So um, they may not, the limits of the negative ads, they may not change or affect partisan attitudes, but um, they may not reach the target audience. We talked a little bit about that. But they could also be too below the belt. They could be too nasty. You know? And that's something we could see that could just turn voters out. Do you think that has anything to do with voter turnout? Do you think people, you think so? You guys are nodding a lot. So you think people are just like, explain. Who wants to talk about that a little? People can see like the two below the belt ads as like too messy. And they're like, I don't really want to get in on this anymore. Like they're like, these politics seem a little too personal for like me as a person to go vote out on it. Yeah. But why should we vote? Why should we? kind of ignore that uncomfortable part of it. We'll go down here. Um, I think it's part of, I think it's a lot of, there's a mix of um, the structures that are in place that are really oppressing so many people's voices. And when we do have access to the polls, we should be able to use that in the best way we can. And a lot of those structures aren't just systemic, they are also um, the narratives that are used, and they're also the candidates that are presented, and it's that feeling of, even when you have your right to vote, it's the feeling of, why should I? Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the tactics that are being used to silence people, and I think fighting against that is incredibly important. Yeah. And Gabby, you had your hand up too, like, why, why should we go out and vote, even well, if we feel a little disheartened after yeah. seeing things? I was going to say, like, at this point, like, if we are talking about having a democracy and wanting a democracy so bad, part of having a democracy is being able to make your voice heard. And right now, the only way to do that is to vote because like, I'm, I'm not sitting on the Senate floor right now. I don't have that say. So my say is who I vote for to be that voice for me. Yeah, that's really good points. Anyone else on just the, the going out to vote? And I you know I mentioned at the beginning of class that the lines can be long. Um, it's Early voting is starting. It just started this week for us. Um, but I think that's encouraging no matter what side you're on. I am very, I'm neutral, I'm nonpartisan. Um, but it's encouraging to know people are using that voice despite the mudslinging, despite the negativity. People are coming out, and that's why we vote, right? So back to the ads. Um, the limits, like we said, they could be too below the belt. They could not really change the partisan. But they could also rally that base. They can mobilize that base. People remember those negative ads. So they can have a big influence. And some get more press attention. Some are turned into memes, right? Then they go viral. So those are uh, ways that these ads are used. In terms of how to correct the misconceptions, um, one way is to flood the zone. How many of you played sports? Flood the zone. So right, you just uh, basically you'd use more speech to combat the speech. You, if you ignore the attacks, um, sometimes that increases the credibility of the attacks, so ignoring it is not necessarily the answer. It just depends on the case. Sometimes that can be a good one. Um, Fact-checking, I always encourage fact-checking, right? Fact-checking, which we're going to go over in a minute, how you can fact-check as consumers of these ads. Um, but it can also, it's, it's usually very good. Fact-checking is good. 
but if the news media is using it on an ad that maybe no one had seen before, right? Um, you're amplifying it maybe to the point where it wouldn't have been seen as much, but now that you're talking about it, it's going to get out there more. So that's the only downside of bringing something up and trying to fact check it. You have to see if it has that reach. One thing social media does is show us view counts. It shows us maybe who is watching this and why the record needs to be corrected, but that is just one thing in media. Um, here are some fact checking sites that, if you've taken a class with me before, you've seen this, but these are things you can use and I encourage you to use. We've talked about media. We've talked about news media. We trust reliable sources. We trust journalists. We can go to the New York Times Code of Ethics, their page, and see all their standards and ethics, and we can trust that they are abiding by those ethics. There are procedures in place. There are editors. There are, and every network I worked at, it was the same way. So there are sources you should trust. One of those sources is also the Associated Press. They have a fact check, which we've talked about. Um, PolitiFact.org, factcheck.org, Snopes.com can sometimes help with these ads, but other things you're seeing that you want clarity on. Um, that last point is really important. Reliable and trusted journalists who abide by journalism codes of ethics. We know the difference between a tabloid and a real like, news organization that abides by the codes of ethics. So that's just something to keep in mind as you're looking at these ads, but as you're navigating uh, these waters in the campaign season, because it can be very confusing, right? Um, so let's get to social media. This is advertising and the social dilemma. What has happened, as you can see up here, what has happened the past week that's made, past few weeks that's made a lot of headlines with Facebook? They're stopping posting political ads on the election day. Yeah. So why would they do that after the election? <laughs> that I don't get. <laughs> what have we talked about with mail-in ballots, absentee ballots? If the, if the election is close, we might not have the result right away. So what they're doing is stopping the uh, advertisements now. I know uh, Twitter has also start, said that they are going to block any tweets from either campaigns that they try to falsely claim. The, that they've won. Yep. So social media is stepping in um, and trying to combat this now. Does anyone know in 2016, though, what happened with advertisements on social media? How did it affect? You guys remember the Cambridge Analytica? So that's something you all can look into, but that's something that is stemming from this, and now they are doing it. A lot of people are saying, why aren't they banning them now? because they're very influential. So we'll get into that as well. But these are just some of the headlines from the past week where Facebook is going to boycott um, these after the election, so starting November 4th. Um, so we want to get into PACs. And PACs are something that they're pretty easy to break down um, in this sense in the way we put it here. So in, in your book, they do a really good job. So in 2016, approximately 2.83 billion Billion, billion with a B, was spent on TV political advertising for different elections. So relying on news and social media, that was free advertising, President Trump spent less than Clinton in 2016. So how did that work to his advantage? What were they playing so he didn't really have to use advertisements as much? They just used 
all of his news clips, anything he ever said to the press, and he kind of just used them as free advertisement. Yeah. So he, a rally would be taken live, and um, Clinton was not doing as much, so it was not taken live. But there was a lot of criticism on um, the news media and if there was equal coverage. So that's something that's really been talked about as well. Um, this uh, turn, it's very hard to make a comparison to 2016 because of the pandemic. But we do see a lot of you know, rallies happening. We're having two town halls tonight, um, debates, debate on our campus. Um, but the, the big thing I want to get into here is that advertising dollar, PACs and super PACs. So super PACs can raise as much money as they want. Um, and they can raise it from corporations, unions, associations, um, and they can use it for their political candidates. Um, and that is different than a regular PAC. So super PACs are prohibited from donating money directly to political candidates. But as of October 7th, 2020, 2,150 groups organized as super PACs have reported total receipts of $1.4 billion, again with a B, and total independent exp expenditures of more than $1 billion in the 2020 cycle. So this is what super PACs, they can make all of this money um, as outside groups and fund these ads. And you saw one of those ads was not, if it says not endorsed, but you know, I endorse this message by the candidate, that's a pack, but a super pack is an outside group that can get a lot of this going. So imagine the negative ads, you know, that are out there right now due to the super packs. So that brings us to the conclusion, really, of our lecture. We've just got a couple more slides. I was like, uh -oh. it's at 435. I'm like, why am I on here? <laughs> it's something about me. Every time I start talking, like, so it, there's a dog barking. Um, all right, so it's great conversation about the, about the super PACs because that's something that we'll talk about more uh, in the coming weeks is how the, the, the financial structure of elections has changed. And so as Professor Duck mentioned, you know, super PACs have taken this to a whole nother level. Um, you didn't really have super PACs or even just regular PACs uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. So I just wanted to show you uh, a little bit of the difference here. With 1960, about $20 million was spent total. Now, again, this is not accounting for inflation, but uh, 1980, that's up to $107 million, 2000, $306 million, and then the court case that's really going to change everything, and that is Citizens United versus the FEC in 2010, which reversed a century-old campaign finance restriction and enabled, enabled corporations through super PACs as long as they're not directly coordinating with the campaign to raise unlimited amounts of money, which is going to give corporations essentially a voice in politics and special interest. So they're able to spend unlimited funds, and this decision is going to complicate campaign finance. It's going to raise a lot of concerns about transparency. There's still a lot of controversy about this court case. And so you want to know what the total is, campaigns and super PACs piling in right now for this next election. $10.8 billion. So we went from, uh, you know, a few million dollars to 10.8 is expected to be spent in the 2020 campaign, smashing records. That's as of October the 1st, uh, 2020. And so 
in the end, and this is the, uh, the, the last slide here in the end of our lecture, and we want to thank all of you for your participation and, and for your willingness uh, to answer questions and to present. We want to thank C-SPAN um, and Professor Duck and I have really enjoyed this experience. But to wrap up this presentation, we say that in the end, presidential elections are about persuasion. And persuasion is not equivalent to truth. So remember that as we go forth. And we have one more thing to give you because we, we do. do want to give you truth. So as you exit, you Listen, will each. Not just one or two of you, but this time we really are Oprah with the Constitution. We're going to make it rain. <laughs> All right. So you get a constitution. Everybody gets a C-SPAN constitution. Come get it as you walk out the door. Have a great day. Watch the debate. Vote. See ya. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.